Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Sword of Destiny. That is what the uh, Sword of Destiny collection gets its name from. Uh, it is series intro, and once again, I am joined by my friend Jackie Rapier. Hello, hello. Um, and I just want to tell the listening audience, we have uh, decided that because he's pretty much done with the, the short stories to discuss the larger ramifications of the series including the netflix show um and as such uh i had established way back when my spoiler uh sort of uh way of going about it with uh with babylon 5 it was uh you know anything up to that episode and with the uh witcher it was anything that the netflix show has outright done um, but I will probably be getting into some larger spoiler territory, so be warned. Alright, so, uh, The Sword of Destiny is series intro. Mm -hmm. And so I want to know, what are your thoughts on her in general, but also her introduction? Well, I really like how in this version, it's quite different than the Netflix version, in that, as you, as you mentioned in the past, she's not presented as this, you know, grand chosen one who's on the run. The first time we see her, she's just this little kid uh who's mm -hmm. a bit of a brat who's got a cold and Geralt takes pity on her and he's very they got a very cute dynamic very early on that's way more appealing to me than a netflix version because at this point you know season two was supposed to be about developing them wasn't it but I, re I didn't really feel anything at the end to be honest so i really appreciate how the books really built it up more as this is Geralt entering fatherhood but he's not accepting at first so the end of the story is just him running off and that leads into the this big moral conflict for the next story and i wish that's what a netflix version did now that i mm. now that i've seen both sides of the coin as it were i wish that netflix version did have that initial meeting of her as a younger kid before leading to the grand you know the grand saga story as it were mm. oh i i absolutely agree uh i remember when season one came out uh everybody was talking about wh why did they not do sword of destiny because they kind of did mm. um they, they 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 have like in episode four she enters broke alone and then episode five she leaves and there's like this weird like you must drink the waters of broke alone but it's like someone looked at sword of destiny and said ah who cares about themes of parenthood and uh except in, in be becoming an adopted parent let's talk about the plot yeah. uh and the the plot of sort of destiny is just an excuse for uh Geralt and Siri to get to know each other so you're like okay mm. um so um uh, and, and within that, by the way, like they, they they break their own rule. In the show, they establish that anybody who enters Brokelone must drink the waters of Brokelone. Yet the Doppler, who <laughs> is in disguise as Mousesack, can just walk in, take Siri, and leave. No questions asked. He has the power of plot armor. Yeah, and God, that the I I thought that that was just like eh like it was like a minor detail i wasn't gonna nitpick it but that kind of writing the uh we forget our own rules for sake of plot becomes so massive in season two it is just unbearable but that is neither here nor there um i remember people were talking about the sort of destiny and like you know they are strangers when they meet in the show um and, and so like how are they going to develop that and then we found out that they were going to adapt grain of truth and 
uh everybody was like so the so they decided to not adapt the 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 fatherhood story and instead take a story that is completely separate and graft mm. on the fatherhood to it yeah a bit bizarre very uh-huh. bizarre when you see it on paper Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the you have several problems with that. First of all, uh, they they've aged up Siri a little bit, not too much actually. Um, she's only twelve. Uh, mm. and the sh- uh, she doesn't act twelve. Uh, and her actress is twenty years old. But according to timeline and explicit dialogue, she's supposed to be twelve. Wow, that's that's ridiculous. Uh-huh. I think she was like. 16 at the very least and that's me being generous so 12 she's meant to be 12 yes that's ridiculous yeah in episode 7 of season 1 it 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 is said that Geralt waited 12 years to retrieve his child of surprise the thing is is that because of the timeline jigmarole thing in uh in season 1 there is some gap between uh, you know, when Geralt goes to retrieve her and when everything goes down. Mm. I, I would say be generous, maybe a month. Uh, and then there was a month time jump between episode two and episode three of season two. So if we're going to be generous to the show, um, Beltane happened, because that's when her birthday is, uh, and uh, her and she's 13 now. But no, she she does not act twelve or thirteen. No, not at all. Yeah, um, and her of course her actress is twenty. So, um, at the time of filming, I think she was nineteen for season two. Um, but yeah, so in in, in the books, like in the short story, she is eight nine around there here, and then in Blood of Elves, she's about twelve. So, like, it is, is a reasonable, uh, you know, uh, age up to just immediately make her 12. That's not too, too far of a stretch. But, but then they seem to conflate the, uh, the actress's age with series age. And one thing I really like about here is that, uh, you, you brought it up, that she's just a little girl with coat. Mm. Um, there's... Uh, there is this wider implication of who and what she is uh, as we get into the story, and uh, I know where that's going, but uh, the, 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 the thing is is that this meeting is so humble and ordinary, um, and I, I, I like that, that it is just, he doesn't even know who she is for most of the short story. Uh, it's not until it's blatantly told to him that mm. he realizes, oh, oh, crap. <laughs> um, and so there's just this, um, uh, you know, theme of fatherhood of, you know, him, you know, giving her a piggyback ride and, but also disciplining her when she's being a complete brat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, uh, and he doesn't placate her, you know, he, he knows early on that she's some sort of royalty, but he's just like, I don't give a shit. I'm going, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to treat you like a kid because you're a kid. Um, and there's just this, you know, greatness from small beginnings, I, I guess is the lack of, uh, inability to really express this, of that. To me, it is so important that uh, the Geralt-Siri relationship begins so small 
and normal. Because, you know, while while things are going to happen and there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen, some of it pretty large in ramifications, the books always make sure to keep that on the down low and sort of keep everything a bit more grounded and more uh, emotional and uh, less operatic. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, having such humble beginnings is very important. Definitely agree. Yeah. Mm. What was uh, I? I kind of like gave my thoughts on the 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 show version of this story. So what was your take on that? Having experienced that first, and then coming to this and realizing, oh, what? I mean, I'm gonna say I'm on team book now. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> probably doesn't help that uh, I. The Brooklyn stuff in season one was essentially a C plot, but across like two or three episodes. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's buried underneath all the subplots of Geralt and uh, Yennefer. So, as you, I think, as you mentioned in a text we had, is essentially five minutes of Sword of Destiny spread across multiple episodes. It's just mm-hmm. a very bizarre way to go about it. Because the story feels, it felt very satisfying to me to read because it felt like the really perfect uh penultimate short story leading into the wonderful finale that has something more because that's just made mm. you know that's just made the ending of that story so much more impactful of those two meeting in the book version because you know they already knew each other she already has this great respect for him great love for him Geralt's trying to deny all that like oh i don't i don't want this but then the story's about him realizing you know he thinks he's lost he's, he thinks he's lost her uh, and that just makes that moment of finding her again so much more impactful. You know, the the beautiful something more dialogue. It's really, really just hit me in the gut, even though I knew it was coming. Because at this point, you know, you'd already told me a lot of times. But it's just such a fantastic build-up. Really good story. Uh, and that just makes me, as you said, the first time I saw, I essentially saw the scene was a Netflix version where you mentioned at the time that it was ruined for you because the line... Uh, was about her asking about Yennefer. And mm. at the time, because, you know, I was, I didn't know any better. I was like, okay, this, this seems fair. She's got like psychic powers. She can tell who Yennefer is, something like that. But now I'm looking back at it and I'm like, no, why would you shift the focus from this, what's supposed to be a father daughter dynamic to talking about the, I guess, missing love interest at this point? <laughs> like, I, mean... I know what I'm getting the sense is, you know, the whole story, um, in Shard of Ice, Yennefer was talking about how something more is needed for mm. her love to work with Geralt. And the initial idea is it's a sacrifice is needed. But then what well, the final story is building up is that Siri is to something more. And that's fantastic. So I guess in some sense it would make uh, sense for Yennefer to be involved. But to shift that much focus onto her, it just feels very asinine to me. Yeah, like the that who's Yennefer line in something more, uh, yeah. in, there's something more adaptation was just so bizarre, especially because everybody I've ever talked to, um, even the non-super into the books um, uh, people that I've talked to, they have read that short story and they were on the verge of tears or outright tears at the end of something more. And part of that is the buildup of that relationship and sort of destiny. In the show, because of what they did, they're essentially strangers. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the problem is is that I know for a fact, because they they, they uh they talked about it in some of the behind the scenes, they filmed the scene as it is, uh, in the book. So mm-hmm. uh, you're you're much more than that, Siri. You, you know, you're more than that. 
Did they give a reason why it was changed? The, uh, Lauren believed they didn't earn it, so they cut it. Oh, what? Yeah. Wow, that is bonkers. So if she says that, that's they're essentially accepting what that they failed at this. That just seems bizarre to I me. I know. I, some of the behind the scenes stuff. It is very bizarre. But yeah, I can I can send you the script of uh, of, uh, of of the uh, the much more moment. It the last line is still who's Yennefer, which is their own edition, which is like, whatever. But to me, as long as I had those lines, I was happy, you know? And then I found out that they filmed it and then they cut it. Is that version available to see online? Uh, no. I, I only know of the script version. I don't think that you can, because uh, it probably ended up in the cutting room floor and they and Netflix does not release deleted scenes. Uh, I know some streaming services do, but uh, Netflix never has. Because um, goodness knows, I would want to see a bunch of Daredevil deleted scenes. But uh, no, in the the reasoning is they didn't earn it. And and I remember someone asked Lauren, "Why do you feel like you didn't earn it? Why did you choose to skip Sword of Destiny if you wanted to earn those lines?" And she went, well, the way we thought of it, if we were going to adapt the uh, short stories as are, Siri wouldn't be introduced to the second season. And we didn't want that. And, uh, you know, and I'm just sitting there like, you you could have just pick and chose certain short stories and had her in early, but <laughs> that's just uh, me. Uh, and then... And then she was like, so that's where we came up with the timeline thing. Uh, and because of the timeline thing, we couldn't have, uh, you know, uh, Geralt meet Siri and Broke alone. So uh, we're sorry that it hurt some fans, but th that was just the way it is because we needed to have, you know, our other main character in the first season. And I'm just like, what? That seems like rather uh, sort of jumping through hoops thinking it, mm. it doesn't seem like i can understand so, so i remember you sent me a video not too long ago about the cowboy bebop netflix thing oh yeah um and uh in that that person said that apparently uh uh american audiences can't understand if if not all of the main characters are in the pilot <laughs> yeah because that's something that was when I was watching the show, I couldn't help but connect it, compare it to um, the the Netflix Witcher series because you know they're both Netflix, and you 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 love the Witcher series. I deeply loved the original Bebop, so it felt very funny to compare in my head. And that person's mm. video, um, I'll try to find his name later so we can mention it and recommend it to viewers. But he did a really good job, as you say, of talking about how Netflix and other production studios seem to have this bizarre perception of how western audiences and the like want an adaption to work which falls flat on its face because stuff like cowboy bebop is or was already a a gateway show for western audiences to the world of of anime and i'm sure something similar was like that with uh with witcher so this seems very asinine for them to alter what has already worked yeah so i think it, the the uh the, the creator of the video was called mother's basement i believe that's it, yeah. I'm yeah. Um, you know, when, when he talked about that apparently American audiences can't understand if all the characters don't show up in the pilot, that just screamed out at me because, you know, it's the same studio, it's Netflix. 
Um, and we contrived a way to get Siri in the pilot, and then uh, Yennefer shows up in episode two. Um, and um, I'm like, the the timeline thing was entirely to give everybody equal screen time. Um, you know, which is fine for the most part. Some of it is just kind of like, couldn't you have done without that? Like, uh, there's uh, the the Yennefer story in episode four. I remember uh, where she's being chased by the the rogue mage. Um, that you know that that could have easily been shortened. It's just there to add to the action quota. And you know, I remember the days of when like Babylon Five could introduce a new main character in season three, and no one batted an eye. Um, you know, our Battlestar Galactica, a more recent show than Babylon 5, you know, a main character doesn't even show up till season 2, and even then, he's only in season 2 for like 3 episodes, and then in uh, season 3, in season 4, he is a major player. Um, so, like, like, this kind of thinking of every character must show up in the pilot is just so bizarre to me, and that <laughs> And I think that hurt them in the fact that they were rushing to get to the saga. And you can tell they rushed to get to the saga. They fit as many short stories as they could into eight episodes and immediately started on Blood of Elves. Um, and so I can understand from a marketing standpoint to want to get to the saga as soon as possible. And the short stories are Geralt's story, whereas the saga is much more the three of them. Uh, so... There are things that you will have to change in a TV adaptation to say, hey, these these three characters are of equal importance. It's not just this lone guy. Um, but to do it this way was such an odd and almost a disservice, I think, to the audience over what the, these characters' interactions and in, in how they are in the novels, they should be much more in the TV show, you know? I feel like if you reach the end of the script and he says to himself, hmm, I feel like we haven't earned adapting this moment, then clearly a second draft is needed. It's just, just mm. feels sloppy to me. Like, I'm, you know, I've, I assume it's easy to judge from my end because I don't know the full story of what they had to go through over there. You know, the script writing process is always difficult. There's always a bunch of rewrites needed. Mm. So, you know, it's easy for me to judge from my perspective. But it's just, if that's what, if that's what they're telling the audience, if that's the reason they're giving for their uh, to alter it, then I just wish they gave, you know, ironically, something more <laughs> to yeah. justify it. The the idea of not being able to earn it, like, um, I, I, I know that, uh, you know, TV production isn't easy. I've heard a lot mm -hmm. of stories from various people talking about it. Um... The the only person that I can think of that talks about it any kind of let's try and make it smooth is J. Michael Straczynski, but he went in with a very particular skill set and a very particular mindset of how to do it, um, and he kind of set this modern standard, so, you know, uh, but, you know, th there's always troubles, you know, actors having to leave or... Uh, you know, something have to be rewritten on set and, you know, and craziness happening and budget constraints and all that jazz. But to me, just like having to Geralt and Siri meet in a forest, uh, and it shouldn't cause an issue. Um, and if you cut the rest of it, if you cut the dry heads and all that jazz and you just created your own budget light 
um, adventure for them to go on, that's fine. Because I think that bonding is necessary. You know? Um, So it just felt so strange. Um, So one thing uh, I I noticed um, in this short story is how the Dryads are sort of a gender-inverted look at the Witchers. They abduct young girls... Uh, and they, uh, they turn them in the dryads. They also adduct men occasionally to use them as breeding stock. Um, and it just sort of creates this sense that it is the witchers being reflected, uh, back upon them, that they, uh, upon Geralt, uh, that the witchers, you know, kidnap children, quote-unquote, with the law of surprise and whatnot, and they're only stealing boys. So sort of a gender inversion. What is your opinion on that sort of uh, being reflected back on him? I think that's a fantastic concept. And I was thinking to myself at the time, it did feel like a reflection of the witcher society, but you put it into a lot more eloquent words. It makes me you know, think of it more. Because there was that lovely scene where Geralt's reading that bedtime story and reflects on how little dryads love bedtime stories, and so uh, just as little witches do. And I felt that was a very sweet moment of self-reflection of him connecting more with um, Brian. Is that how you, is that how you pronounce it? Yes, Brian. Yeah, Brian. Because I guess in a way she could be the dryad Geralt in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she there's there's actually a, a little bit of. Um parallel there actually you brought up a good point uh because she uh she was a uh, she's not pure blood dryad mm. um and uh she was made into a dryad and there's this entire talk of uh you know the the waters aren't working as intended that some of them are still remembering their old names um and she remembers her old name and if you remember in something more when he talks to his mother uh Vicina, uh she keeps calling him Geralt and he's like you do not get to use that name Vesemir gave me that name um and there's this entire deal of where she's like you are mistaken um and so there's this interesting idea of of uh identity tied to a name uh and how much does your name help solidify your identity? Um, and does and does taking on a new name, uh, you know, does it allow you to separate yourself from yourself in a way? Is that like a connection to Civi's royal title, like Princess Calanthe and all that? Yeah, I, I, I would, I, I would say yes, because mm. her her real name is Cyrilla Fiona Ellen Rhiannon, um, and uh. She likes to go by Siri. And um, there is just this general sense. I, I think I think you bring up an excellent point. I didn't even... It, it, for some reason in my head, I wasn't even making the connection there. <laughs> of Her entire story is about agency and identity. Mm. Um, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to say this, but I did say kosher with... Uh, you did say kosher with spoilers, so here <laughs> goes. Apologies. <laughs> um, so she is the product of a Nazi eugenics program. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> no. I... Like literal Nazis? Not real Nazis. Okay, good. I was, no. Because you did tell me about the whole multiverse stuff last time. So no. I was willing to accept she comes from another world. But when you, when you said there were Nazis, my mind just like 
shattered there for a second. <laughs> there are a group of elves who are basically right. Nazis. They they believe in racial purity mm-hmm. and they believe humans to be a blight on this earth. Um, and they are all about uh, elven superiority over others. Yeah, so it is elven Nazis. I uh, get okay. so I. More, more than what I was thinking of. But when he said it hit Nazis, I was like, oh shit, is he Litzville? <laughs> no. Uh, so yeah, Elven Nazis. There you go. I just call them Nazis because that's the best way to explain it. If, you know, uh, radical racist uh, belief in purity? I, I, you mm-hmm. know, easier to just say Nazi. And, and part of that program was a, an attempt to open the doors to the multiverse. That the uh, the ability to travel through the multiverse used to be common, but it eventually started disappearing, and so these elves were trying to uh, b- bring that quality back, so they were doing selective breeding. And as a result, there there's this prophecy, and there's all this craziness over who and what she is. Um, you know, she has the expectation of being a princess. Uh, you know, you gotta go and marry this guy. I mean, this entire story is about her running away from an arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's the, uh, you know, everybody wants her for a particular reason, whether that's Amir, her dad, uh, wanting to have a baby with her. <laughs> incest. Fun for the whole family. Yeah. Uh, every incest is incest. Um, oh, <laughs> Yeah, and uh, uh, the the elves want her for other uh, other things. Uh, you know, certain groups of elves want her for other things than other ones. Uh, you know, uh, the that this scene is in Netflix, so I can say it without you know too much worry of all the all the kings and queens of the northern realm want her for one reason or another. Whether that's to marry her off to get a quick and easy castle's belly on Sentra, or as uh, as Foltus decides, the girl must die for reasons of state. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody has this want and need for her. And the only ones who really give a shit about what she really wants is Geralt and eventually Yennefer, mm. uh, her mother and her father. And uh, in, in the entire saga is them being ripped apart. And them trying to find each other again, and in that finding misery and turmoil, it is a tragedy. Um, and, you know, the end of the saga, I won't spoil too much, because I think it is very important that it remains that way. But it ends in a particular way where she leaves this universe. Um, because she is tired of being told who and what she is, and she needs the ability to be a real person. She's mm. not, you know, she is not a, uh, she's not a princess. She's, she's not some child of prophecy. You know, she is just a girl, a girl trying to find her way in a world. Uh, and, uh... And part of this, I think, is an interesting parallel. If you remember back in Lesser Evil, uh, we had a princess who was mm-hmm. uh, dictated by prophecy to be evil. Uh, and uh, so a lot of things happened to her. And the question is, did she become a monster because that was what's prophesized? Or did mm-hmm. she become a monster 
because of what was done to her because of that prophecy. Um, uh, you know, monster by, uh, you know, monster by birth or monster by circumstance. Mm. That That's the big question of lesser evil. And it is left ambiguous and it's best left ambiguous what Renfrey really was. I'm the firm belief that Renfrey was a psychopath, but the way she got there can be interpreted in many different ways. And mm. so you have Siri going on a very similar path of, you know, Oh, the Netflix show even directly says this uh, when the Broxa of Rina from Grain of Truth says eventually he will come for you. Um, you know, Siri is on a path, on a path that is not going to lead to kindness and warmth and joy, but instead death and misery and monstrous actions. Uh, and so the question is monster by birth or monster by circumstance? Mm. And so... Um, you know, uh, you you brought up a great point with that that the identity thing. It wasn't even popping in my head at the moment. Of yeah, like attaching that that naming convention thing to uh, from uh, Brienne to Geralt to Ciri actually works rather well. Um, mm. and I, by the way, I did try and keep spoilers as light as possible, <laughs> still being able to get my point across. Um. Now that you know some of where Siri is going, what what do you think about that? I still feel I haven't seen enough of book Siri at this point to build a mm-hmm. whole image of her. I've only you know I've only seen her under two short stories and just the opening chapter of Flood of Elves. So I guess I don't have a full image of her yet, to be honest, to to, okay. to directly compare her to the Netflix version. But it is interesting what you're telling me. Um, I know I said this last time, but it does give me. Uh, his dark materials kind of vibes, and as this young woman who's you know traveling across all these universes and her grappling with destiny and and all that. So I guess that's just my way of contextualizing it because that's a series I'm more familiar with. I, you know, that's mm-hmm. one I read growing up. Uh, but yeah, it is very interesting. I'm looking forward to it mm-hmm. to to experiencing it properly. So we briefly touched upon uh, Geralt being afraid. Uh, and, you know, running away. Mm-hmm. One of the big things I, I always read in Geralt is I, I've talked about the comfort blanket before, and I've talked about him being a phony, uh, sort of hiding from himself. Um, in And at the end of The Last Wish Collection, at the end of Voice of Reason, you know, the entire time he's like, I don't want Iola to tell my future. And then she tells his future, and he gets on his horse and rides away immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, here... Mausak says, oh, this child is your child of surprise. You know, you need to take her, you know, destiny. He gets on his horse and he runs away. Um, so the big thing about Geralt is that he's afraid. Afraid of many, many things, which is ironic for a witcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, he's afraid of destiny. He's afraid of death. He's afraid of what, uh, you know, might happen to people that are close to him. Uh, and he's afraid of himself. Uh, and so what do you think of Sapkowski sort of taking, you know, while Siri is the explicit chosen one in this narrative, you know, there are people attached to her that are also chosen in a way, and Geralt's one of them. What do you think of his take on the chosen one narrative? Because in a lot of chosen one narratives, you have people who deny it until they get close to a death 
thing, you know, like they they, mm-hmm. they almost die, and then finally they realize, I am the destined one, I must take on and charge ahead, and Geralt never does that. He comes mm-hmm. to death multiple times, and he never says, oh, I'm destined to do this, and blah, blah. He flat out denies it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, there's no such thing as destiny. Uh, and repeatedly, when people say, you know, destiny is a two-edged sword, you're one of them, what's the other one? He's like, I don't care. So mm-hmm. what is your take on on Sapkowski sort of taking the Chosen One narrative, dividing it between two characters, and of course the series stuff you haven't got to, but that's major deconstruction on what the Chosen One does to a person. As I said, monster by birth and monster by circumstance. Uh, but you have Geralt, who is also destined for something, but refuses to do it and continues to refuse to do it in despite of literary conventions. So what are your thoughts on that? So my takeaway with the ending is whether this is something he genuinely believes in or is this an excuse he's coming up with. Geralt talks about how the other blade of the Sword of Destiny is death. He has this conception that death always follows him or that he caused, well, yeah, as, as we know, he does cause it sometimes, but he believes it's uh, a mist that's following him around. And his reasoning for leaving Siri is that he doesn't want her being dragged into his world. So he's ignoring all this talk about dest- how they're destined, uh, I guess, in an effort to save her, which is mm-hmm. kind of backfires, as we know, as he himself learns later on in, in something more, as he learns about the inta- uh, attack on the city, mm-hmm. he feels like uh, death has claimed it anyways, even though he wasn't there. So I'm guessing that must have been a real gratifying moment for him to find out that she is still alive, and that gives him a second chance to to accept that destiny, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and death is a major theme that will reoccur throughout this. Like, not only just the basic idea of death, you know, people dying, but also the ramifications of it and um, and responsibility. Mm. Um, you know, in something more, Geralt has a chat with death. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now it is worth noting that he passed out, and there's this implication that he was just dreaming. Because he's on hallucinatory drugs. So we don't know if he actually talked to death. But I'd say it's pretty safe to assume. Uh, uh, at least uh, in his head he did. Uh, and death dogs his footsteps. Um, and what? who also dogs his footsteps? Oh, that's right. His destiny. His child. I was going to say dandelion. <laughs> yeah. I'm joking. But yeah. Yeah. Um, and I will say, trying to avoid much spoilers, but, uh, in a particular instance, in a particular book, Siri will say, I am death. Very cool. Yeah. Very epic. So, as I said, monster by birth and monster by circumstance. And so there's this, you know, implication of not only is he afraid for... Uh, Siri's life, which is why he runs away, but he's also afraid of just getting close to anyone because that the, the death dogs his footsteps thing is almost an excuse he uses to not get not to get close to anybody, and anybody who gets close to him basically forces themselves onto him, whether it be that dandelion or Yennefer, in this case Siri. Yeah, so it's like extrovert adopting an introvert, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, the. One of the things that I've noticed with Chosen One narratives is that everybody will die in service of this Chosen One because the destiny and prophecy foretold it. But no one ever thinks about the consequences of that (laughs) uh, and what that would do to a person. Um, 
and part of this story is deconstructing the Chosen One narrative. Uh, so if you have people who are willing to die for you, what does that do to you psychologically? Uh, and what does that do to you when you're, you're told you're going to be great, you're going to become important, everything you do matters, but mm. this person that you actually rather liked and enjoyed the company of took a bullet for you. You know, um, that's, that's going to have an effect. Um, mm. And uh, and Strakowski is going to continue looking at that. So I was just interested to see how uh, it reflected on you when looking at Geralt in this early stage of refusing destiny. So, you know, what is your uh, take, I, I think, on uh, the Geralt-Siri relationship in general? Uh, wh what do you think of it, um, you know, and is, uh, is the fatherhood earned? At the end of something more is, um, do, do you buy in them, you know, this being a, a story about family? Um, and what is your, uh, general approach to this versus say, you know, we have the second season, the second season of Netflix show attempted to really, uh, work on that, that relationship that we said was missing in season one that we talked about at length. So, where you are in the books and where you are at the in the Netflix show, what is mm. your read on those respective relationships? I would, I at the moment, I'm, this is my time controversial, but I'm gonna say neither version has really earned fatherhood yet in mm. in both Netflix and the books. But I, I'm gonna say the books are doing a better job because I think, it, as we said earlier, it established their connection much earlier on in this really sweet way. We learned it's less about. Uh, him accepting fatherhood it's she's chosen him because as there's that very sweet scene of you know mouse sack and Geralt arguing about Geralt trying to die oh she wants nothing to do with me but mouse sack is like well she's sleeping because she, you snuggled her she's calling your name and holding trying to hold it out for your hand death she you don't need to choose her Geralt she's chosen you mm -hmm. and i find that a, a, a fitting uh metaphor i guess you could say a fatherhood of perhaps a you know a surprised one or possibly adoption in this case, mm -hmm. uh, but with the Netflix series, you know we, we've already gone over how their how their first meeting feels like the meeting of strangers rather than someone being reunited with the the daughter they try to separate themselves from. And season two, they have a nice little dynamic in season two, but it's nothing I'm going to shout over. And I usually really love the found family dynamic in shows and movies, mm -hmm. but I'm just not getting that sense here yet. You know, and it. It feels like it's right there. Like you've already talked about how Yennefer is the mother, the dandelion is the uncle, or in this case, you know, Yaskia. But even though they have interactions in this season, it's just not really clicking with me yet. Probably because mm. the whole, you know, Yennefer initially tries to give up kind of thing. And the, the two soul scenes we have of Yaskia and Siri talking, she just blows him off. You know, mm. <laughs> not, not in that way, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so. Maybe season f that that's something we can build up in season three, but I'm just really not getting that sense at the moment. Whereas mm. with the book version, it's not there yet either, but it's definitely taking the right steps for it in my head. Yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, on a metatextual level, so I came from the games before I, mm. I got to the books, and obviously the books are my number one like favorite part of this franchise. Uh, to me, it's just the eight books, and you can remove everything else, and I wouldn't care. Uh, but I came from the games, and specifically Witcher 3. 
And Witcher 3, uh, the big focus is the Geralt and Ciri relationship. Uh, so I already had the knowledge that they were going to become father-daughter. As such, uh, the book didn't have to work all that hard for me to buy into it because I already had that knowledge. Uh, you know, you, you were coming from the show, but the show really didn't build up the father-daughter relationship early in season one. Mm-hmm. And if I, you know, probably if I hadn't told you, I don't think it would have been particularly obvious. Um, you know, just to, just to give an example of, uh, you know, uh, me and Claudia talked about this at length in our, our, our Witcher Season 2 addendum. Uh, they did a gimmicky thing where they released all the episode titles of Season 2 except for the final episode, the season finale. And then when it came out, it was just called Family. And <laughs> everybody you know, including me, thought it was going to be like a big major spoiler thing, and then it turned out to be family. And Claudia gave a great, great reasoning for that. She's like, yeah, it's gimmicky, and yeah, it was a bit ridiculous. But to anybody who's familiar with the franchise, saying that these three characters are family is just the buy-in. Like, that. that's just taken as fact. Mm -hmm. To anybody who's new, who's only watching the show... The fact that their family is going to be uh, a major reveal. Yeah. So, uh, that was her reasoning for uh, thinking why they decided to hide that episode title. And so, I I think there's there's an interesting thing here where the 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 books have a very clear trajectory, uh, and uh, I was already bought into it because of the games, but you weren't seeing that because of the show, and so you still think that there's some work to be done, but I didn't think so. So I think that's a rather interesting uh, dichotomy there. Mm. Uh, like I said, I wonder if it's part of the, you know, I came from the games type thing. Well, I was kind of already aware of the whole father-daughter dynamic because of, I guess... Uh... I just, there's a specific word for this, but it's not coming to my head right now. It's just online. You, you know, you see posts and, and the like about the games and you kind of just build it up, uh-huh. uh, the general gist of it. So I kind of already knew going into both the Netflix series and the books that would lead into this uh, kind of adopted dad and daughter dynamic. So I guess that gave me some leeway into accepting a bit more than I mm-hmm. might not have if I was going in totally blind. Because I imagine if I was going in totally blind into Netflix series, I probably did, that ending probably wouldn't mean much to me. Just uh, th- this is my uh, final question. It's kind of bounding off something you said. So uh, you don't think the show or the the books have truly earned the fatherhood thing yet? Just quite yet. But you think the books are getting there. What do you think is needed for uh, them to earn it? Something more. <laughs> that was too easy <laughs> Could it just... yeah I, I mean both the Netflix and the, the books so I feel like season 3 does have potential to work the f- family dynamic but here's what it should do it should actually focus on these two on these characters together because I feel like last season they kept separating from themselves mm. you know I, I feel like Siri spent more time with the other witches than the titular witcher you know mm. her father so i feel like that's something that should be fixed on this season just have just have you know Geralt, yennefer siri dandelion at this point i'm just going to call him dandelion because that's my <laughs> ideal image of him uh just have them you know as one unit just tra- traversing this world have them really build up dynamics with each other because at this point you know if they're together we don't need to have this whole 
B plot, A plot thing, which is just focus on these guys as they make their way across this world, you know, try to figure out the mysteries of it all. And that way you can build up a real family dynamic. Because if you keep splitting them up, you're not really going to get that. Okay. You know, I can't speak to what the show's doing because this season is so off script. <laughs> I don't I don't know where things are going. But I will say, Blood of Elves, half of the, uh, literally half the book, series with Geralt. The other half of the book, series with Yennefer. And it's building those relationships. Book four, Time of Contempt. Um, they're together for the majority of the book, and then some shit happens, and they will be apart for a large stretch of time. Um, so I'll be interested to hear, uh, like I said, you're welcome on Ethan Pastor Short Stories if you ever want to come on to the, the main novel section. I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are, um on how that relationship develops, because uh, I know where it's going in the in the books anyway. And you do get your time for them to bond, but eventually the time comes for them to uh, be wrenched apart um, mm. in the most horrifying ways. Um, and, uh, you know, that's going to last quite a while. Um, so I, I'll be definitely interested to hear your thoughts on that. I don't know if they're going to do it in the show, you know, I, there's some things I guarantee that they will do uh, just because they're either iconic or they've done enough setup for it in the previous mm -hmm. seasons for me to go, oh, that's where that's heading. So w we shall see. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I will definitely be interested to hear what your thoughts are, uh, at least on the novel section. Uh, so do you have any questions for me? Got some questions, but I first want to give out some some more thoughts, if that's all right. Because mm -hmm. rather ironically, just like the Netflix series, I feel like we've glossed over the dryads. No, I mean we we did mention them in the uh, uh in the uh the parallels to the witches, yeah. Uh, but yeah, what do you want to talk about the dryads about? I found this story and the dryads a more better version of what I feel like the elves in Edge of the World are building up. Because when we were talking about that story, we discussed the us versus them uh theme that was going on in it and i feel mm -hmm. like this story did that in a more engaging way for me personally because i feel like we're really in that final slice of this fantasy realm that belongs to this one you know proud species that's trying to stave off uh humanity's grasp over it and and themselves and i really mm -hmm. love the queen's dialogue of she's talking about how they're so far away from the species they can't really you know, they have different understandings of things like the the kings and all that. They believe that so-and-so is the border, whereas to, to the dryads, it's much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And I really connected with the whole idea of, you know, she feels uh, that if she lets the king take like, uh, it's basically give them an inch, they'll take the whole yard. That's, yeah. that's the general feeling I was getting. Mm. And I could really... I, don't, I feel like the Dryads aren't good people. They're kidnapping, you know, children. But I, I, just, I didn't see them as pure evil in a way. I yeah. did see them as more complex, you know, people. And it's very good to have that be in, con you know, be in contrast to just how complex humanity equally is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, I, I think the, my reading on the elves comes from the larger book narrative. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the Dryads will show up again. 
Oh, we haven't seen the last of Athene or cool. any of these. Um, uh, but um, they're much of a lesser uh, player than, say, the elves. But you actually bring up a really great point. There's there's some really great moments, uh, like um, when Athene is, you know, saying humanity is nothing but pure vile and hatred, uh, and Geralt counters and goes. You, you you may be different, but I believe you feel just as much hatred as mm. they do. Uh, it manifests in different ways, but believe me, I've seen hatred in your eyes. Uh, or that bit where he talks to Moran and he goes, it's so easy to kill with a bow, isn't it? It's so mm. easy to say that the arrow killed him. Not I, but the arrow doesn't dream. You do. That might be my favorite line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is such a perfect, you know, um, I, I think I grew up in America and obviously you're in the UK, but uh you you obviously know we have a big gun culture here in America. Mm -hmm. Uh and I grew up in the South where there's even bigger gun culture, you know, there's gun stores right across the road from me. Um, and that's, you know, as someone who's very pro-gun control, that's very concerning to me, and I'm sure as a European, that's very concerning to you, because you guys don't have the same gun culture that we do here. Mm. And, um, the, the, the thing is, is that I've heard the argument so many times, people, you know, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Um, and the, the, the thing is, is yes, that's true, but guns were explicitly created to kill. Um, and so, um, just because you choose not to use the instrument of violence to cause violence does not mean it wasn't there for violence. Um, and that there's a moral responsibility to only use these kind of, you know, tools as pure defense. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, uh, are that, and his, uh, you know, Geralt's argument to Moran about, you know, uh, you know, it's so easy to believe that the bow kills people, um, uh, and not I, that is such a, it is nearly word for word, just replace bow with gun conversations I've had with people. Um, and it, 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 that really struck home. Yeah, the, 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 and uh, the, the, also the, you know, as, as you said, uh, give them an inch and we'll take the yard type thing where there's this, you know, he's there to parlay with mm -hmm. the teen uh, on behalf of uh, the king. And he's just, uh, you know, he, he's trying to get them to both realize, hey, you know, you need each other type thing. And none of them want to do it. And there's an interesting concept I see that, uh, you know, most humans are pretty mean towards the Dryads, but the king, um, you know, is actually rather uh, accepting of them. He just needs more of their land. And so there's this mm -hmm. dichotomy there of the needs of the state and the needs of the many uh, outweighing morality. Mm. The force is essentially a gold mine to him because yeah. all that wood is perfect material for more weapons, castles and the like. So it really does tie into the whole, you know, one big civilization trying to take over to get their resources, whether it be, you know, gold, oil and the like. And they, they have a guise of, oh, we'll come and peacefully just take a little bit to the, mm -hmm. you know, the natives. And then over time, that just gradually becomes a bigger, absolute mess. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
you know the 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 soldiers there don't have uh they they, they ex have explicit orders don't hurt the dryads uh because the king respects them but also he doesn't respect them because he needs you know their wood mm -hmm. um and so there's just this interesting dichotomy i think of especially once again being american of uh you know we respect uh, you know, uh, the, the, the people of Afghanistan, which is why we occupied you for 30 years and then stole your oil and then ran away, you know, uh, just, uh, the dichotomy there of we come in peace, but also we want X, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, the, that, that, that legacy and, uh, that, that, uh, culture of abuse uh, even on the most kind and moralistic person weighs down on you. Um, and I think that's an interesting commentary that Spikowski's doing of, uh, you know, the both sides are kind of s stuck in their ways and they are causing each other tons and tons of issues. And, you know, it's clear that the, the numbers game is going to uh, reside in the humans. But, uh, you know, uh, eventually Dryads know that they're going to lose that battle, but they're not going to go without, you know, some sort of retribution. Mm. Uh, and so there's just this underlying sense of, uh, much like in Edge of the World, uh, of, you know, the inevitable is coming, and we know what the inevitable is, uh, but there's just this sense of, you know, melancholy sense of dread along with uh what could have been mm. you know all, all mixed up in there yeah so i got a bit of sense of that in this story whereas mm -hmm. as i mentioned last time with edge of the world i feel like you explained it perfectly but i didn't really get that sense of the book because i feel like it was buried under too much whimsical stuff you know too much nonsense with that little mm. goat man and you know it's a fun it's their fun antics but they didn't really make me appreciate that theme as much more until mm. you uh, overtly met, talked about it to me. Yeah. Whereas with this story, I I feel like it's much more. It, it works nicely in connection with the theme of of fatherhood of Geralt's fatherhood. Uh, I feel like that there's it's not buried under too much levity. I mean, fair enough. I mean, there's still levity there. Like the yeah. uh, Ferenex, you know, he's quite a funny character. Um, mm. you know, he talks about how he was cursed to be a bird and how the ballads have made that story seem more glorious, wonderful than it was. You know, give him seven brothers and all that. Uh, and yeah. it's nice levity, like you mentioned last time we spoke, if you're going to have a dark story, for God's sake, make a joke. Yeah. But it's not buried under too much whimsical nonsense. Mm. I can really appreciate that inevitable uh, fin final battle, I guess, is what, that's always on the mm. horizon. Yeah, and the, by the way, the, the, the swan thing, the Frexenic thing of uh, he was turned into a bird... Uh, and everybody thinks he was turned into a swan, even though he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, like that's an actual fairy tale. I forget the name of it, but the, swan. The, the, Princess Swan. I think so. It's the the one where you have to put a necklace of like herbs around you and uh, that that cures it or whatever. Um, like that that fairy tale. It's making fun of that, but you know uh, that 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 that's old hat for Sapkowski. He takes fairy tales, he twists them. And sometimes he'll make fun of them. Sometimes he'll use them straightforwardly, like in Beauty and the Beast. Um, but it just really depends on his mood. <laughs> yeah, it was totally Dandelion who made up that fake story about the swans, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, I mean, if you want to take it that way, yeah, sure. Um, I don't think it's ever mentioned. I don't think yeah. I could. I could be wrong. Um, 
but no, uh, the definitely uh, that's an interesting read on the differences between this and Edge of the World. I think um, my, like I said, my read comes from the larger saga implications, and I know where all that's going. And so, um, you you probably uh, you probably weren't picking on the same stuff I was because I saw all the foreshadowing and all the 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 uh, stuff that's going to come back later. Whereas you were mainly picking up on, you know, the torque side of it. So, yeah, that, that that's understandable. Um, so, yeah, like, these are dealing with very similar themes in that regard. Uh, and so you make an excellent point. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have nothing else to say on the Dryads, uh, what are your questions? There's an observation I kind of like to make about this season, and it kind of relates to how the audiences of both sides of a coin view it. Mm -hmm. So as we've made very clear, I imagine now to the audience... You, as a massive fan of the books, have issues with this season, whereas I find I've talked to family and friends who are more of a casual kind of audience go into the second season, and they don't seem, just like you, they don't seem terribly impressed by it. And I found that rather interesting. Mm -hmm. um, my brother said it didn't really grip him at any point. And I have one friend who had this wonderful, ironic statement said... I feel like it's made more in mind for fans of the series than you know fans of the books and the games than a casual audience. And I found that rather ironic given the conversation yeah. you and me have been having for the past month about how you as a diehard fan haven't been the biggest supporter of this latest season. Mm. So I guess what I'm coming to is season one was meant to be, you know, it was trying to adapt the the short stories and you weren't terribly impressed by that. And the second season was doing more of its own original arc. And that doesn't seem to impress anyone. So it just kind of makes you wonder, what really is the point of the show? Yeah, now, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying this show doesn't have any fans at this point. You know, If there are any mm -hmm. listeners to, to this podcast who do enjoy the second season, that's perfectly valid. I still found it uh, a, good, a good, good fun. But it just does make you wonder what exactly the writing team is going for if they can't seem to handle both sides of the coin, you know, in trying yeah. to appeal to both a casual and diehard audience. Yeah, um, me and Claudia have been recording our addendum, and by the time this episode goes out, uh, uh, our addendum will be out, and it's going out in podcast form, so uh, people can listen there. She brought up a great point. She really liked season one. Uh, she thought it was better than the books. I don't agree, but that's that's her prerogative. Uh, and uh, she was like, there, there are things in season one that you could tell they really, really liked the books, and they, uh, you know, and they were setting up some stuff for the future in those short stories that weren't initially designed to be setting up things. Uh, because these were, you know, originally supposed to be just a one-off short story and then a group of short stories, and then it wasn't until he got a book deal that, that he really started turning it into something with a clear trajectory. Mm. And while I had a thousand problems with season one, I did overall enjoy season one. Uh, I can be quite negative, especially, uh, you know, uh, just in general, but also with uh, people who know me like you, uh, you know, I can, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll not sugarcoat things, uh, compared to someone I don't really know. Uh, and so with the, the, the show, I thought it was meh, you know, mediocre at best. Mm. There were times I really had a lot of fun with it, and there was times I absolutely despised it. 
So that equaled out to be about meh. And I was hoping that had more to do with the fact that they were dealing with the short stories, and the short stories, you know, not until later had a clear trajectory, and, um, you know, only focused on Geralt rather than the two other main characters. And so there was a lot of work, and, you know, short stories are... Uh, you know, the, the short stories are not uh, adapting them to a modern version of a TV show, so, uh, you know, serialized narrative over a short span of episodes is not an easy task. Um, and, uh, it was gonna require a lot of work. And so, I was over a meh, and I was like, maybe they'll improve in the second season, maybe the second season will, because you're moving into the saga, you have a more straightforward narrative from here on out. Uh, fo clearly focused on these three characters, uh, that you won't have to contrive ways to give them equal screen time. Then we got to season two, and they were it was it's all original content pretty much outside of the first episode, which uh, which adapts a grain of truth, and a handful of moments such as Dandelion being uh tortured by Ryans. Uh, pretty much everything else is completely and wholly original. And Claudia um, uh, brought up a great point of, you know, she she you know she didn't really care for season two either. Uh, she had lots of problems with it, and uh, you know she she thought that it is complete reverse of season one, where she thought universally season one was amazing. Here she doesn't really like season two, and you you you're talking about that uh, other people in your family uh, weren't really connecting with it, and I think that what it really is is um and me and her hammered it down. We think it has to do with Hollywood pacing. Mm. Um, that the reason for almost the entirety of season two being original content is because Blood of Elves is a very slow book. It's a book about a father and a daughter and a mother and a daughter getting to know each other. And it's, it, you know, it, it's seven chapters of just that. There's no major hook, you know, uh, and plot. There is under the surface if you know what to look for going into the other books. Um, but it's all underneath the surface. It's not very overt. There's only a handful of fight scenes. There's no hectic, crazy, end-of-the-world bullshit going on. It is just simply Geralt and Ciri hanging out in a decrepit castle for half the book, and then Ciri and Yennefer hanging out at a temple for half the book. And then you have the end, and that's it. Um, and from a Hollywood standpoint, from a modern American standpoint, that is too slow. Uh, and that's also not what grips audiences. Uh, in my opinion, it should, um, but we live in the world where the mar marketability means more than coherent storytelling. Uh, and so they change pretty much everything in season two to add monster fights, to add hectic end of the world bullshit, to do all this crazy stuff that, that that has no real rhyme or reason and doesn't really fit into the rest of the saga going forward. Uh purely to uh to excite audiences and get them at the edge of their seat, rather than really focusing on the emotional core of the story. And um I remember Back in season one, there was a uh, there was a director Alex Sardakov, 
Uh, he's really big in prestige television. Um, you know, he uh, directed episodes of Black Sails and Game of Thrones. Uh, he was supposed to direct four out of the eight episodes of uh, of season one, but he ended up only directing two, and one of those was severely reshot by another director called Mark Jobst. And the uh, reasoning for this that he gave uh, in an interview was uh, that Eastern European literature has a very different pace from Western literature. Uh, and the the people in charge of the Netflix show wanted to make it very fast, make it an action show, uh, appeal to American audiences, and that was not his view of The Witcher or his view of European literature, so he decided to leave the project because it just wasn't flowing with what he thought the series should be. Um, and so I think that is the problem with the Netflix show. You know, I could deal with them making wholly original content. If it was paced well, if it was at least moderately okay, uh, and the characters were the characters I know. But at this point, to contrive ways to make it faster, more action-y, more intense, more American, um, they have twisted all of that, and their original content is mediocre to bad. They're, the characters, in some ways... Uh, barely resemble the characters I know. Uh, you know, Geralt would never put a blade to Yennefer's neck. That was the moment the show died for me. Um, and um, and, and it's just insanely paced. It, you know, it, the pacing this season is a little tighter than season one, but I think that they were too focused on plot A to plot B to plot C, you know, me, you know, intense rising action blah blah rather than really focusing on what the core of the book that they were adapting is which is the emotional core of the characters mm. and they lost sight of that and i think another friend of mine put it really well he said uh, they changed a lot to quote unquote give people what they wanted more action you know uh, more monsters etc and witcher is an inherent uh, inversion of every fantasy trope you've ever seen. It will take everything you're used to seeing in Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, etc., uh, and twist it into its own version and and show the 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 ridiculousness of it and deconstruct it, reconstruct it into something greater. So to change it to give people what they want is an inherent misunderstanding of what The Witcher is as a franchise. Um, and so I think that's the biggest thing about the Netflix show is that they are too focused on, you know, action and plot and, uh, intensity and things that could go viral on the internet rather than really telling a cohesive and interesting and emotionally true story. Mm. Yeah, that's been it put. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, one of their executive producers, uh, he gave a he gave an interview talking about that media is changing because uh, the you know the 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 main group uh, uh, you know the main focus group the the audience that they're the the target audience is uh, the TikTok generation or the Vine generation or the YouTube Short generation that they are used to quick bursts of immediate gratification and content and. Uh, and, and logic 
doesn't matter as much as the immediate gratification. Uh, and that shows this season that that is the mindset of the producers. Um, you know, me and Claudia went on a big rant about how, you know, they say that about every generation that attention spans are getting less and less and less mm -hmm. and, and that it doesn't really matter. And you should just make stories to be true emotionally and focus on that and focus on good storytelling and good characters rather than focus on gratification for a, a, a sort of mythical audience that you perceive to be real, but actually isn't. And uh, just the way they pace the season just really shows. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, anything else? Yeah, so something I feel has gone on the radar is this year we're getting another Witcher project, Blood Origin, a prequel miniseries. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Because apparently a trailer did come out at the end of the uh, yes. of season two. I just heard nothing about it. I didn't hear anyone talk about it at all. So I only found out a couple of days ago. I was like, oh yeah, I knew there was a prequel series coming. I just didn't realize it had already been filmed. Yeah. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. So Netflix came out and said that they view Witcher as a franchise as their competitor to Marvel. That it is uh, the big cinematic universe for Netflix. Uh, it's eight books. It's very focused on three characters. That does not universe make. It is not something like Marvel that's been around for nearly a hundred years uh, and has so much material that it's nearly infinite mm -hmm. um, that it's just not possible to turn it into one. And I think that they chose the wrong franchise. I think they should have went with Conan the Barbarian if they wanted to do something like that because... Conan is a been around far longer than The Witcher, but also has is has a massive extended universe and uh, continues to be iterated upon even to this day. Uh, and I think Conan would have been far more suited to what they want to do. For Witcher, they they did a prequel anime, uh, you know, Nightmare of the Wolf, which I thought mm -hmm. was, I just thought it was meh. I had no real major thoughts on it. I have no hatred of it, and I have no pure love of it. It's just kind of fluff in there. Because essentially, they took three lines of dialogue and turned it into an, an hour-and-a-half movie. Um, and uh, Blood Origin is going to be a very similar thing. They're taking the conjunction of the spheres uh, and making it a big old, you know, several-episode, I think it's six to eight-episode miniseries. And it's like, is there really a story to be told there? No, not really. Um, but they want to, because they need to have a big, you know, universe to spawn from. And, like, this season, this most recent season focused a lot on monoliths. Monoliths are not from the books. Uh, they are purely a show invention. And I, and I believe this wholeheartedly that that was invented purely for the excuse to make more shows, such as Blood Origin, to explain it. Uh, that because they're dealing with a series that is only eight books uh, and tightly focused on three very particular characters, that in order to make a Marvel Cinematic Universe type thing, they're going to have to create things whole cloth to uh, even warrant telling other stories. And so I believe that's exactly their thought process on why the monoliths became a thing, uh, is because they needed an excuse. 
and uh, and that allows them to spin off into Blood Origin, which is about the conjunction. And because the monoliths were connected to the conjunction, it's obviously the origin stories of those monoliths. And so they're effectively using my favorite fantasy franchise, uh, favorite book series, to spawn shows to make money. Mm. And that feels disingenuous. Um, Blood Origin is being showran by Declan Debarra. Declan Debarra is one of the few non-Americans on their writing team. He's Irish. Uh, he, um, uh, he wrote episode four of, uh, of, uh, season one, which is fitting, uh, for this episode, because that was the Question of Price adaptation, along with the Sword of Destiny kinda adaptation, um, and I did not like that episode all that much. I think Question of Price was decent-ish. There's some changes in there that I didn't really like, especially Calanthe's character. I think Calanthe's character was dumbed down immensely. Um, and, uh, and stuff like that. But, like, it, it's overall a mediocre episode. Mm-hmm. He, al- he also wrote A Grain of Truth this season, which is by far the best episode of this season. And so, uh, even though I have tons of problems with it on an adaptation level, uh, I think it missed one of the major points of the, 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 the story, which was the toxic masculinity side, uh, and just sort of wrote it off and, and sort of just condemned him for rape and didn't really think about the ramifications of why he committed that action. Mm. Um, you know, that... You know, me, me and Claudia talked about this also in our addendum of we understand their impetus in the modern day to want to condemn him for the rape. That's fine. But let's look at what caused him to do that action and the social issues such as toxic masculinity and peer pressure. Instead, they went for the easy route, which is rape bad, which, mm. yeah, like that's that's an easy moral. That's a moral that everyone could get behind. <laughs> Um, there is no nuance there. There is no discussion about the larger societal issues that caused that action. Uh, that is in the short story. And so, despite that, I think that was the be- the best episode of this season. So, Declan DeBarner can be hit or miss. Um, and so, you know, I don't really have much of a stake in it. Like, this is, to me, The Witcher is the story of Geralt, Yennefer, and Ciri. And the moment you dive away from that, you're going to have to work extra hard to get me to care. And the only time I've ever seen anybody actually do it, uh, you know, not counting Road with No Return, because Road with No Return was not originally supposed to be part of the Witcher saga until much, much later, um, is a Thronebreaker, which is the uh, the game by CD Projekt Red, the fourth Witcher game, effectively. Uh, and it follows a character called Queen Meave, who's in the books, uh, who you've met in the Netflix show mm-hmm. already. Uh, and uh, it takes place in a particular time in the books when she is fighting a guerrilla war against Nilfgaard. Shit's going down. Um, I enjoyed that, but that was mainly because it was a new perspective on the story that I already know. Um, it was the book story from the perspective of Queen Meave rather than from Geralt, Yennefer, and Ciri. And so, whereas one of the strengths of The Witcher is the micro-storytelling. I think we brought this up last time of, uh, you know, 
Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings are macro stories, big, epic events. Uh, whereas, um, you know, the, the Witcher is much more minor, down to earth, um, fo intently focused on these three characters. And so, uh, the, the, the Thronebreaker game sort of gave me a look at what if Witcher was a macro style story, uh, told by competent writers. Uh, and so that was interesting. Uh, and I think that uh, that was interesting and that, was, and that has merit to it. Uh, Blood Origin is so far removed from everything that I honestly don't have much of a stake in it. Like, I have no interest in it, really. They, they cash Michelle Yeoh in it, who's, you know, a great martial artist, and she doesn't exactly pick the greatest roles uh, because uh, she's... She's been a main character in Discovery, in Star Trek Discovery, for years. Uh, and, of course, that writing on that show can be... Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you would agree. Um, but at least the fight scenes look cool, because she's a professional mar martial artist, so she does all her own stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> like, that's about all I can really say about Blood Origin, is it's supposed to be a story about the conjunction and a story of the first Witcher. I'm assuming there's going to be some timeline shenanigans, because those two things did not happen at the same time. So unless they, you know, contrive some stupid way to make it the same thing, um, then uh, there's going to be some timeline shit going down. Um... Apparently, Yaskir is supposed to narrate it as, like, an unreliable narrator. Okay, odd. Yeah, um, which is fine in, in the... One of the core themes of Witcher is um, good facts versus real facts. And what I mean by that, that is a... That, that's a line from Babylon 5, so I... Uh, basically, it's revisionist history. That... Mm. Um, History gets rewritten by the victors. And not only is it rewritten by the victors, but it's rewritten to make things seem grander and kinder and nicer than it actually was. Um, mm. And so every American is taught, in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. What we're not told is the genocide he committed. Um, and so the idea there is to uh, have Dandelion give us what is told and then show us what is really going on, which is an interesting concept, fits in with some of the larger themes of The Witcher. We'll have to see how they do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I like the Blood Origin thing is just kind of there for me. I don't really have much of a stake, and hence the name. I guess they're gonna go into the Elder Blood. Um, and, um, based the way that they're treating the elves in this, I doubt they're going to do Nazi elves. So, um, who knows where it's going? I can't really tell you. Anything else? Yeah, just one final thing. So this is more of a out-of-the-box type question. If you had a chance to speak to the author, uh, I'm afraid I'm not able to pronounce his name properly. <laughs> if you had a chance to speak to him, what would you, what would you say to him? Would you ask him a question you've had for ages about the series, or would you give him a personal uh, thoughts on your series? Um, that's a difficult thing uh, because Andrei Sapkowski is very um, he, he, he's very sarcastic uh, in interviews and stuff. Um, he's very Polish and so if you understand the Polish mindset in, in just his sort of very dry sense of humor not everything he says needs to be taken seriously. You need to sometimes he's just there to make a joke about things. 
Um, so I would have to catch him on a very particular day when he's not in that kind of zone. I did actually almost get to meet him. Really? Um, yeah, uh, back in 2018, just, uh, just as I was graduating, um, uh, the, I, I just gotten into the books. I wasn't all the way through yet. I think I was on Baptism of Fire. He gave a book signing at, uh... Uh, at a Forbidden Planet in London. Oh, thank you. And I was thinking about going, but I had the wonderful responsibility of being the head of a society. Uh, and so I had to run uh, a session that day, so I decided not to go into London and meet him. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I almost got the chance to meet him, but decided not to since I had other responsibilities. Um... But uh, I I think the main thing I would ask him, um, you know, I wouldn't want to get too personal because the these books came to me at a certain time when I was not in the greatest health mentally, uh, and they helped me in a lot of ways. So I wouldn't want to get too personal and go, oh, your work saved my life, and blah blah blah. That's I I've been there when uh people have done that to writers, and it's always an uncomfortable thing uh where the writer doesn't really know how to to the respond to that <laughs> so um i would just ask him you know granted you know this is the question i would ask him if i met him back in 2018 this is before things happened i would i wouldn't want to talk about how his relationship with his son it influenced the way he uh that he wrote the the Siri side of things and the 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 relationship between Geralt and Siri. Now, I don't know if I would want to say that now because his son did pass away from cancer uh 2 years ago. So, um I don't know if I would ask that now just out of respect. Um but it is something that does interest me that I do think the themes of fatherhood and parenthood in general are so strong here. And we do know that his son was the one that encouraged him to send the first short story into the contest. So I wonder just how much of this saga is really him pulling from personal stuff with his son. Mm. Um, I think out of respect, not not asking him about a question about his dead son, um, that, uh, I would just, uh, thank him for writing this story, uh, very much, like, I, 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 I got the chance to talk to Greg Rucka, uh, back in 2018. I got to interview him for two hours, but, uh, that was only by the graciousness of him. Uh, I, when I first talked to him, all I, all I wanted to do was just thank him. And go, you you created something that connected to me personally. Uh, thank you for, you know, writing this. And I think it's just, uh, you know, an acknowledgement of public service. That, uh, you know, writers, you know, they're not going out and saving people like firefighters and, and policemen. But they are uh, providing a service. Um, entertainment, certainly. But also something deeper whether that's emotional support or otherwise through the writing, you know, fiction is a lie that tells the truth. Um, and so I, I just want to thank him. I think. Yeah. Very good. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Nope. That's all for today. Well, thank you once again for joining me. 
Uh, and, uh, thank you, uh, people for listening. Uh, hopefully I didn't get into too much spoiler territory that, uh, would ruin you if you are just experiencing this. Uh, like I said, I, I wanted to give that warning at the very beginning. Uh, next time will be something more. And then after that, we will be going chapter by chapter through the novels, starting of course with Blood of Elves. Um, after Lady of the Lake, we will be covering the non-canonical short story something and something begins and then season of storms i will have to think about how i'm going to do that because the chapters are broken out in different ways than they are in the other books so uh but for now chapter by chapter in the main saga uh and thank you for joining me bye my pleasure bye